there we are once again here in Father Spitzer's universe at the busy intersection of faith and reason. As Father explains how it goes hand in hand, I'm Doug Keck, the gatekeeper here at the Mothership, where it all began in Irondale, Alabama, thanks to our great Mother Angelica. Email your questions to us at spitzersuniverse at ew10.com. Of course, that helps to drive the program. And you can check out all of Father Spitzer's website, thematchiscenter.com and purposefuluniverse.com and spitzercenter.org, each with its own interesting charism and interesting approach. And you know, Father Spitzer's Universe is always available on our EW10 YouTube channel and the EW10 On Demand page, as is so many of our other programs. Recently, we uploaded a very, very popular new program to our On Demand page for free, To the Top, Pier Giorgio Frassati. Now, this was filmed in Italy, and this docudrama chronicles the life and spirituality of Pier Giorgio Frassati, put his Catholic beliefs into practice to help the poor and downtrodden in his hometown of Turin see it now for free and on demand. Uh, it's a very powerful program. I hope you enjoy it. And we're continuing on with the moral wisdom of the Catholic Church from Father's wonderful book available through our religious catalog, EWTNRC.com. Speaking of books, we've got Good Night Jesus by Kate Sidnor, which is our book of the month for August. And that's a wonderful, wonderful kids' book, something you should look at for Christmas. And we turn now to Father Spitzer out on the West Coast, who will lead us in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your many blessings to us, the blessing especially of this ministry and our ability to serve in it. We ask you to send your Holy Spirit down upon us today, Doug, myself, our whole audience, so that everything we do and say will be brought to fruition in your will for the good of your people, your church, and your kingdom. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the merry seat of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Absolutely. I hope you've been well this past week, Father. I have indeed. Good, good. Good to hear. <laughs> uh, first, here's uh, we get started on our topic. There's a, an article I thought was interesting from the New York Times, believe it or not, by David oh. Brooks. He wrote this article. Uh, to be happy, marriage matters more than careers, the title. When I'm around young adults, I like to ask them how they're thinking about the big commitments in their lives. He goes on to say, the common operating assumption seems to be that professional life is at the core of life and that marriage would be something nice to add on top of it sometime down the road. He goes on to quote that 75% of adult ages 18 to 40 said that they make a good living was crucial to fulfillment in life while only 32% thought marriage was crucial to fulfillment. He said, many people have shifted away uh, in, the, in the sense of how they conceive of marriage. To use sociologist Andrew Churlin's language, they no longer view it as the cornerstone of their life. They view it more as a capstone, something to enter into after they successfully establish themselves mm -hmm. as adults. That sounds, sounds right. Partly as a result of these attitudes, there is less marriage in America today. The marriage rate is close to the lowest it's been in American history. For example, in 1980, mm -hmm. only 6% of 40-year-olds had never been married. As of 2021, 25% of 40-year-olds have never been married. Now, he goes on to offer his own advice. He mm -hmm. says, my strong advice is to obsess less about your career and think more about your marriage. Please respect the truism mm -hmm. that if you have a great career and a crappy marriage, you will be unhappy. But if you have a great marriage and a crappy career, you'll still be happy. Your thoughts? 
I think he's absolutely right. And uh, I've got to read some more things by David Brooks. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you, right on the marker, I think the family has been the center of culture, but also the center of interpersonal identity in every culture going back 3,000 years. And all of a sudden, we've got a real change here. Mm -hmm. We've got a culture that actually subordinates family. So not just the children part of family, the spousal and children part of family subordinates that not only to uh, the career itself, but the prestige of the career mm -hmm. in particular. Mm -hmm. So the idea is not enough just to get money, you gotta get prestige from the career. And of course, um, uh, there's nothing wrong with wanting some prestige or wanting a successful career or something where your, your talents are utilized very well and you make sufficient funds uh, to, to support your family. Of course, that's a desire. But um, what Brooks is saying is absolutely correct. Uh, you, you really do have to put the family in the center. At the end of the day, it's your family that's going to support you. It's your family that will become your meaning and purpose in life. You are bringing, now from my faith perspective, mm -hmm. you are bringing little eternities into the world, mm -hmm. not just a temporal reality. And the little eternities you're bringing into the world have transcendental identities. They're seeking perfect truth, perfect love, perfect beauty, perfect goodness, perfect being in home. I mean, the, the, you know, the mystery is so categorically, you know, difficult to classify in any kind of finite or algorithmic terms that, I mean, it's, it, it, this is the most precious entity in the world. And you are married to one of those mysterious, transcendent, intrinsically good, mysterious human beings. And so, uh, um, of course, this has to be. Uh, the center of one's life, the center of our creative potential, the center of how we're going to enter into society, the, the center of how we're going to enter into the church, and the center of how we will enter into the kingdom of God. It is the primary constituent, not just of the church, as the letter to the Ephesians says, but it's also mm -hmm. the center of culture itself. And when the family is rooted out of the culture, culture becomes the most aberrant thing in the world because of course family is one of the most noble things to live for. Family is what enables us and, and, and really elicits self-sacrifice from us and self-sacrifice is good for us. Noble ventures are good for us and trying to communicate our highest values, our religion, our morals to our children is mm -hmm. good for us and it's good for them. It's good for the kids and to, to be the recipients of self-sacrifice, to know the love, the true love embedded in self-sacrifice is good for us. And we're losing it. We're mm -hmm. losing it for what? A career? Are you kidding me? A career is only as good. Now we know that, you know, most careers today are last seven and a half years. <laughs> okay. And when you move on, what have you got left? Mm -hmm. Well, if you have your family, and you have those kids, and you have those little eternities, and you have your religion which is reinforced by your family, and your family that's reinforced by your religion, and you're entering into the culture, and your best friends are the ones who share your moral and religious beliefs, and your best friends are the ones who are desirous of making the culture and the society a better place to live. Hey, this is not a bad deal. Mm -hmm. This is a really good deal. Imagine losing all that, sacrificing all of that 
so you can get a few extra shekels at the end of the day. Mm. Imagine sacrificing all of it for a little notch up in the prestige so that the old Instagram looks better. <laughs> My thought would be, honestly, the end of the day, you're much right. better off for a family, and David Brooks has it right, totally right on at the end of the article there. Right. You know, you can have a junk job, and you can uh, and, and have a good family, and you're going to be right. happy. Right. Uh, uh, but you, you, you really can't have a great job and a junk family and be happy. And be happy. I think the old uh, comedian who said, if mama ain't happy, <laughs> ain't nobody, nobody happy. happy. Right. Well, it's if my family's not happy, I'm not happy either. Right. Right. I think that is no, absolutely correct. Well, I always think of the adage, and I think it's been uh, worn out, uh, shown by people who've experienced it. Nobody in their, on their deathbed sits there and says, I really wish I had gone to work more often. I wish I had spent more time at work. They always talk about the fact yeah. of how remiss it was that they didn't spend more time with their own kids or their own grandkids. Yep. Yep, I totally agree. I've heard it literally from dozens of people right. that they didn't spend enough time, especially when the kids were young and growing up, right. you know, where they had the real influence on those kids and could have really made a difference, and they just weren't there. And so um, uh, you can see why our kids have those emotional stability problems. Right. You can see why they're kind of moving away from religion, which, and religion is such a huge, mm -hmm. huge component of emotional stability, huge component of human happiness, huge component of moral, um, you know, participation within the culture, and yet the, the, the cavalier disregard, like religion is now 10th place, you know, mm -hmm. in people's priorities, and, and their moral commitments are even lower. Mm -hmm. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's pretty discouraging. It, you know, as Plato would say, you know, the, the pagan Plato would say, this is upside down. Mm -hmm. This is crazy that you'd put a career over your family, your religion, mm -hmm. your morality. Are you kidding me? Says Plato, you've now turned the second level of the, tri uh, of the uh, 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 and the first level of the, uh, of the soul uh, into the third and the fourth levels of your soul. Mm -hmm. And that backwards movement is not going to be good for anybody. We'll have more superficial lives. We will definitely have less emotionally stable lives. We will have less happy lives. We will have less significant lives. Mm -hmm. Great. Keep going, says Plato, and pretty soon the culture right. will experience it too. As I always say, the wisdom of our dominant popular culture right. will lead not only to death and darkness, but in the end, a disaster area. Right. Sorry, absolutely. I shouldn't be so cynical, but right. uh, so let's not follow that and let's be countercultural. Seems like reality these days, and not so much cynical, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, somebody said one time, exactly. you know, in people's jobs, and you say, well, you know, I, I have to be there, and it's like, listen, when you go, they'll eat, they can replace you with one people yeah. or one person or ten people, but they're going to replace you. So yep. Yep. The place you don't want to be replaced right. at is in your family. So. Absolutely. Right. Okay. Here's, an, here's another article I thought was interesting. Um, the chairman of the House uh, Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party warned on Thursday of efforts from the Chinese government to subvert Christianity by changing parts of the Bible. This is a CNA story. Um, this was uh, Representative oh, okay. Mike Gallagher. 
Uh, he said, in one example, he noted a misrepresentation of the account in the Gospel of John in which Christ says, let he among you without sin cast the first stone when a woman is accused of adultery. As yeah. the Union of, mm -hmm. of Catholic Asian News reported back in September, a textbook published by the triple CP, uh, the CCP, uh, ran mm -hmm. uh, run mm -hmm. University of Electronic Science and Technology, falsely asserted, so it wasn't necessarily in the Bible itself, but their interpretation, that the story ends with Christ stoning the woman to death, declaring himself to be a sinner and saying, if the law can only be executed by men without blemish, the law would be dead. That was their interpretation of how and how they twisted that as to what the story is really about. Well, that's, that is really twisted because it's, it's the opposite right. meaning of right. everything that was intended in the Bible. But then again, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, boy, I'll tell you, if you believe those statistics, there's a bridge mm -hmm. that somebody needs to sell you soon. Uh, you got to get a dose of reality. I mean, those guys, I mean, it's not just the manipulation of statistics. Right. They manipulate the truth with reckless abandon. And absolutely. I mean, need I say more? No, right. I think absolutely. it's proven every single day. Every statement that comes out of the party half the time is like, you know, you don't recognize it. Do we live in the same world? Right. Obviously, we do not. Absolutely. Because the world of Chinese propaganda is the biggest myth around. Well, right. no, and there may be bigger myths, but that's a big one. Yeah, that's right there. And that's why they fear, uh, their greatest fear is Christianity. It's religion. It's anything oh, yeah. that a person yeah. would have an allegiance to that doesn't relate to their allegiance to the state. Yeah, yeah, the Chinese, you know, government, exactly. And you see that the same thing mm -hmm. in many times in Western culture, where the breakdown of the family and the breakdown of the relationship with the church and making people more and more yep. reliant on the state. Yeah, that's very true. And I mean, uh, I, I see it here in the West. It's uh, much more uh, surreptitious in a mm -hmm. way. It's done through political ideologies and it's political correctness. And, uh, you know, it, it sews up an allegiance to the state. But what's not recognized is that when the, the state makes all of these uh, uh, little uh, political correctness statements, they're also undermining objective morality that has been, as I said, uh, around for uh, a good 3,000 years in the case of some principles and certainly a good 2,000 years in the case of other principles. Mm -hmm. And the main thing is that uh, if you're going to do that, um, you, know, and, you know, in order to get sort of a political correctness, then as you align yourself to the state, you disalign yourself more and more from Christianity. And I'm, I'm not sure that that's not an intended effect. Mm -hmm. uh, the, of the disalignment from Christianity uh, by aligning yourself to political yep. correctness, which, of course, is, you know, uh, 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 pretty much uh, an invention of not just government bureaucrats, but so-called intellectuals right. who are, you know, at the beck and call of many uh, political ideologues right. in, the, in the government. Right, and we see mm -hmm. the effects on many mainline churches uh, when they start yep. adapting and adopting those particular uh, perspectives, uh, you know, the... Yeah. They start falling apart. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And uh, um, I don't have to tell you because the statistics prove it, uh, you know, beyond the shadow of a doubt. The more you start accommodating, uh, you know, those kinds of um, what I would call empty rhetoric uh, mm -hmm. views, you know, in other words, they're non-self-sacrificial uh, views of love, non, um, uh, you know, truly mm -hmm. gift of self forms of love. 
uh, but they're like what I call niceness principles, Rogerian principles. Mm -hmm. uh, if you uh, try to replace true Christianity with that, with a, you know, a standard of objective morality, with a standard of objective uh, goodness, with an ideal of self-sacrificial and noble goodness, you start replacing it with being nice, at the end of the day, you will lose right. your customers because, uh, in other words, your, your adherence to your religion, because nobody wants a nice religion that has no challenge, no self-sacrifice, no um, requirement for an objective reality that their conscience is screaming at them to have, mm -hmm. and no allegiance to a transcendent God, which the numinous experience within every human being, God's presence within every human being, is just literally evoking the desire mm -hmm. uh, to be in union with that uh, transcendent uh, being. Right. And so if Rudolf Otto is right, and if all the the, uh, the volumes written on conscience are right. All I can tell you is that, uh, you know, if you're devoid of real transcendence, of, of real objective moral norms, if you're devoid of real uh, self-sacrificial love and, and real love that, that uh, you know, has noble purpose embedded in it, if you just got niceness, <laughs> I mean, what a replacement. Right. I mean, uh, it's, uh, all I can tell you is you're not gonna just lose your, your, right. uh, your religious adherence. Uh, the culture is going to slip away too because the church has been responsible for it being the backbone of the culture. Right. And I'm not going to go quote John Adams and all the other people who have said this throughout the centuries, mm -hmm. but many, many, many a political person right. has known this, including de Tocqueville and so many others have seen the place, the important place of religion mm -hmm. uh, in, in, within culture. Absolutely. One last story. Uh, this is from The Hill. Um, and the headline is something I think we would uh, already know, but it's important to talk. Most women who abort say they would rather not if they could get help. And it's a, there's a peer-reviewed study from May 2023, uh, surveyed 1,000 women who had abortions and found that a staggering 60% uh, said that they would have carried their child to term if they had greater emotional or financial support or both. Sadly, two-thirds said their decision to abort violated their own values and preferences. Their choice was, it turns out, not really what they wanted. In fact, a full 24% described their abortion as unwanted or coerced. And here we are living in a world where they're attacking uh, pregnancy resource centers out there. So. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, I mean, uh, the three things, of course, this agrees with Priscilla Coleman's huge study of three-quarters of a million women uh, showing that 81% of them uh, have um, uh, uh, obviously emotional and psychological effects, negative uh, mm -hmm. effects uh, after the abortion rather than carrying to term with a four times increase in suicide, 2.5 times increase in suicidal contemplation, concomitant increases in um, substance abuse, depression, and anxiety. Now, you look at that and you go, okay, why is it that correlative with the new findings? Because women are oftentimes coerced into mm -hmm. the abortion. Oftentimes they're going against their conscience. Oftentimes they're talked into by well-meaning people mm -hmm. to get the abortion, but later grieve what they have done uh, when they, they really do begin to see that this was uh, truly a human being of their own making, mm -hmm. uh, you know, of God's making too and mm -hmm. a and partner's making, but the idea is they know uh, you know, and the grieving that takes place. It's not um, for me to see that 60% would rather not have done that. But uh, the disappointing thing is, of course, that here we have all of these 
uh, pregnancy help centers that have been established, religious ones, non-religious ones. There's all kinds of, you know, pregnancy counseling center, pregnancy research centers, Obria, et cetera. You can go to so many of these places, yet they are on the attack. People are actually mm. trying to shut them down. Right. And, of course, you can see all the number of coercions. Just remember this. Prior to the passage of Roe v. Wade, coerced abortions were not a reality. Hmm. Today, they are very much a part. I think 24%, honestly, Doug, I think that's really an underestimate hmm. of the number of coercion. I think there's that's a kind of overt coercion is what hmm. they're talking about. Right. There's also subtle coercion, too. And, you know, right. the... The, you know, the snide remarks, the this and the that, you know, you know and, you know, if you don't do this, you know, you're, you're, you're just showing yourself to be a weak-kneed person or something. These are subtle right. acts of coercion, and a lot of people, right. you know, fall for them, too. So I don't think um, right. uh, women are better off. I think women are terribly right. much worse off, and I think, as I said, Priscilla Coleman's study uh, certainly shows this right. in this new study you're citing certainly right. shows it as it's, well. It's interesting that the, clearly it's come out that the Democratic uh, Party's main theme of running over for the election in 2024, their main point will be abortion. That is what they are planning on winning yeah. on that. Yep, I think that's probably true. I think it will affect some people, mm -hmm. uh, but of course I think um, uh, there are many other issues that need to be contended with. And uh, I think, um, uh, you know what they say, mm -hmm. uh, if you focus on uh, one little genie, um, you can have, uh, of course, a, a Trump uh, victory over Hillary mm -hmm. just like that. And everybody goes, how did that happen exactly? Right. So you got to be careful on focusing right. on a single issue. Right. And I think um, be careful, too. Right. Uh, you know, the Republican Party has some, some interesting people coming up. Right. But I think, you know... Um, uh, maybe maybe they do want to focus on uh, on the abortion right. issue. Well, they believe that's what drove that's their. their uh, I think it clearly they believe yeah. that that drove their their wins in in, in the Senate and, and and probably cut down on the House. And the answer is, I think that's probably pretty yeah. well accurate. Okay, pretty true. Right. Mm -hmm. and, but you know, good Catholics uh, of all ilks, Republican, uh, Independent, and Democrats, you know, should pay attention to what their particular. Uh, party might be focusing on or making an example of so and maybe yep. rethink some of their past thoughts about it since you're voting for something that you really directly have an impact on it's not like it's yeah. roe v wade no. and it's you can't change it you're voting affirmatively for something to be made available so anyway yeah that's my yeah. you got to be uh, you know yeah Okay, yeah, absolutely. I'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Uh, next up, uh, some questions. Uh, this one here, as an expert, you are on Old Testament uh, there, Father. Uh, Dear Father Spitzer, the Old okay. Testament states several people had lived to be hundreds of years old. Methuselah, I believe, said to be 936 years old. Was time measured in the same way as it is now? I find it hard to believe that they lived that long, so I'm inclined to think that there is a meaning behind the numbers. Is this correct? What are your thoughts on why we don't live to be that old now? Yeah, well, first, uh, you are quite correct. Uh, they didn't live to be that old in our chronological intention. Uh, numbers have meanings. You are absolutely mm -hmm. correct. 
So, um, for example, um, you know, the, the number seven is a beneficent number and so forth. Prime numbers are long numbers and uh, numbers uh, actually a numerology can tell an entire story. Mm -hmm. So it's not um, uh, unusual to see a proliferation of numbers that have seven times ten, mm -hmm. uh, two longevity numbers and even a blessed number times a longevity number, um, uh, which is, uh, you know, uh, um, like 10, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to, to have 70s prevalent and so forth and 40s prevalent mm -hmm. uh, in the Old Testament or uh, multipliers of 40 and 70. Mm -hmm. So, no, you should not read those numbers uh, literally, especially um, when, you know, the, as you're kind of moving, you know, prior to the Davidic kingdom, mm -hmm. right, uh, if you get those kinds of scriptures that are much older, uh, the numeration systems uh, that are used there are much more frequent mm -hmm. and they did not view numeration the same way we did. They're mm -hmm. telling a story with those numbers and, um, uh, you know, to a, a less, let's say, arithmetically educated public, uh, they can um, use the symbology, um, you know, that's uh, behind the number. Yeah. So as you move, though, toward the uh, uh, Davidic kingdom and and you proceed forward uh, mm -hmm. into the future, the numbers, of course, become much more realistic uh, because there's more of an arithmetic uh, meaning to them, uh, arithmetic meaning to them, rather than just a symbolic um, a meaning or a predominantly symbolic meaning okay. to them. So yeah. your instincts are absolutely correct. Very good. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, I am watching the program The Chosen. In the episode depicting the healing of the woman with a hemorrhage when she touched the tassel, of uh, Jesus is called, Jesus asked, who touched it? Afterwards, the apostles were discussing the miracle amongst themselves and said power flowed from Jesus without his consent. I always assumed his reason for asking who touched him was for the benefit of the crowd showing the woman's faith. Is this correct interpretation or could power flow from Jesus without his consent? Abby. Well, Abby, um, I don't know mm -hmm. um, because we really don't have an access point there um, could power flow from Jesus without uh, his consent? Um, well, his consent is always that the faithful be healed. Mm -hmm. And this woman had, and the whole point of the story is, this woman had immense faith. Mm -hmm. If I could only touch, you know, his tassel, you know, uh, uh, you know on his coat, I'll be healed. And, uh, you know, Jesus always asks that question, right? Do you believe that, you know, I can do this or something of that nature? The faith of the believer is so integral to Jesus' miracles. Mm -hmm. So that's his general, cons you know, his general will mm -hmm. um, is, you know, to, uh, is, is that people who have that faith be healed uh, through faith in him. Mm -hmm. And, of course, he knows that somebody has touched him, you know, so... It's not like he, and somebody with faith mm -hmm. has touched him. So really it is with his consent mm -hmm. that the woman is healed. Mm -hmm. So he, he knows that. And whether he knows who the person is, um, you know, in the crowd, that, you know, remember, he's not only true God, he's true man. Mm -hmm. He may have had a, a real difficult time figuring out who was that that touched him. But whoever touched him had faith mm -hmm. and whoever touched him uh, clearly, um, you know, uh, um, you know, uh, was seeking healing, and and uh, it was his consent uh, to heal them, and he knew that power had uh, flown out of him uh, for the sake of healing, and he allowed it to happen. Right. And so you can say, yeah, it was with his consent, even though he did not know right. who it was. Right. Absolutely. Next, another question, dear Father Spitzer. 
I love your show, especially the segment with viewer questions. Well, thank you. What are the requirements for a married couple to achieve sainthood? Is it possible, Teresa? Is it impossible? Did you no, say? is it possible for a married couple to be saints? And the answer, of course, is yes. But oh yeah, yeah. Oh yes, absolutely. I, I'm sorry, I thought you said it is impossible. Uh, is it possible? Yes, absolutely, it's possible. And of course, uh, I believe in about a year or two, uh, I think we're going to have Saint Therese of Lisieux, right. um, and not only the mom and father uh, both uh, beatified and canonized, but I think you're going to have also. Um, to other sisters mm. along with St. Therese also uh, beatified and canonized. So, right. um, yes, it is definitely possible. In, in fact, and, um, in, in uh, fact uh, married couples are, uh, do a great job of working on each other's sainthood on a regular daily basis. I think that's part of the way it <laughs> <Yeah>. works. <laughs> yeah, that's abs absolutely oh, right. So. Absolutely right, you so. know, and uh, I know you know, that I'm missing out on that. But then again, <laughs> I have all kinds of other people who are perfectly willing, including my spiritual director, to mm. keep me on the road to sainthood, <laughs> and the road to reality, and the road to, to, to sanity. So, <laughs> Okay, very good. With that being said, we don't have enough time to get to another question, so we're going to take our break. And, of course, stay with us, and uh, Father Spitzer will stay there, and you should stay there, and we'll be back right after this very short break. Thanks. We do, as always, appreciate you hanging around here in Father Spitzer's Universe as we continue with Father's book, The Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church. That's our topic, available, obviously, through our EWTN religious catalog. And now we'll get back with Father and uh, continuing on with some of your questions. Uh, and uh, let's see, we've got uh, Dear Father Spitzer, uh, why aren't the Old Testament prophets commonly referred to as saints in the Roman Rite? Is there a reason why the title of saint is reserved for the New Testament figures, and this is Elizabeth? Well, Elizabeth, sometimes they do uh, call them saints, but they're not typically saints uh, in the sense of a post-Christian uh, saint because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we don't see their reaction to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. We suppose, because they are good and righteous men, um, that, the, um, that they are saints uh, in, in the sense that uh, the Lord would have taken them up into his kingdom. Like there's no doubt Moses and Elijah certainly um, who appear in the transfiguration uh, are in the kingdom of God. And that's basically what uh, the word saints means. Mm -hmm. so, um, uh, so very typically we do that. But the church declares only somebody a saint when they have some sort of a, a sense of, you know, where that saint stood relative um, uh, to Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. And if you, you know, if you had a prophet and you'd, you're really not sure, I mean, most of the time, of course, we figure if God chose them as a prophet, mm -hmm. they're going to be in the kingdom of God. But that's not really the, the purview of the church. Um, but uh, certainly one can uh, say that the, the prophets were righteous people and mm -hmm. the, certainly will say that they're in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, but it's not within the church's purview to declare right. them uh, to be a saint in relation uh, to the um, to the doctrine and to the belief in Jesus Christ, uh, which is really 
uh, what the church does. That's its uh, purview. That's okay. what it's responsible for. Okay, very good. Dear Father Spitzer, mm -hmm. I have reached the point in my faith life where I would like to have a spiritual director. I approached the pastor of our parish, but unfortunately, as thin as he is stretched, he is unable to commit at this time. Do you have any advice on how one could obtain a good spiritual director? And this is from Mike. Well, Mike, uh, sometimes the folks in the monasteries are very good. And so you might have a Franciscan, a Benedictine, a, uh, you know, a, um, a Norbertine. Uh, you might uh, have some monastery in your area mm -hmm. um, where um, uh, people will uh, have, a, you know, a more of a time. And they have actually an apostolate mm -hmm. of spiritual direction that's, you know, uh, available to people um, who come uh, to that monastery. So that is uh, certainly a possibility. Another possibility is sometimes you have retreat houses, right? And um, so uh, the retreat house has one or two people that are there as a director. Mm -hmm. And so you might just um, ask if they do um, some spiritual direction outside of the retreat context. Uh, sometimes you can just call up the diocese mm -hmm. and say, hey, are there um, you know, are there uh, people um, uh, who are, you know, um, uh, going to be uh, uh, spiritual directors? Sometimes uh, also there are some uh, really good um, uh, brothers, mm -hmm. lay brothers, and some religious sisters mm -hmm. who are also very, very good spiritual directors. I know a couple of them in the Carmelite uh, monasteries here, um, in the active Carmelite monasteries mm -hmm. here, who are very good um, spiritual directors. Uh, so there's all kinds of um, ways to find some, but those are some of the typical um, uh, sources where you could get them. Mm -hmm. Diocesan priests or uh, super active priests, you know, who are traveling or uh, doing right. a lot of teaching or writing, uh, they tend to be a little bit more thin um, in, in their ability to, to, to right. do any kind of regular uh, spiritual direction. Uh, mm -hmm. I would suggest though, if you say to, anybody that you need spiritual direction more than once a month, mm -hmm. um, you're not going to get any takers because right. I don't know of any priests who have that kind That's of time. That kind of time. Right? Uh, and, yeah, yeah. Well, I know the, yeah. the, the late great father, Thomas Dubay, uh, wrote a wonderful book on spiritual direction, and that was what he was totally involved with. And one time I asked him after a uh -huh. bookmark show, well, you know, how does one go about finding it? And he said, it's very difficult. It really, you have to be... You know, there's, it's not that much out there, and you have to be careful who you go to. But he certainly, oh, I yeah. would recommend checking out his book on spiritual direction. It's really a great book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, check out the person that, you know, you're, right. um, you know, somebody recommends that you choose a particular person. Right. Uh, you can find out a lot on Google. Right. Um, you know, what have they been writing? Uh, right. And, you know, uh, what are the various uh, comments there? And so I would just definitely check it out, make sure, you know, they're good uh, and sound doctrinally right. and good and sound spiritually and, and right. um, you know, have a good, um, you know, desire to serve God. In the right, and, and they're not uh, teaching the Enneagram and Reiki, Reiki on weekends or something, so I <laughs> wouldn't yeah. want that. Uh, dear Father Spitzer, no, I, no. I once heard that Mary stopped aging at the age of 33, okay? Is this true? Why does artwork of the Assumption traditionally depict her as a young woman, Carson? Well, here's my thought. Um, 
I don't, I've never heard that. I haven't either. And I would say that that's not true. Right. I think she aged like any other woman aged. I don't think, of, I think she was assumed bodily into heaven. Mm -hmm. So I don't think she uh, experienced some kind of, um, you know, deterioration of the body or something of that nature. Um, but no, I've never heard that and I don't believe it really. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it makes any sense in terms of Mary being a, a human being. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing, um, you know, is, um, is that I, I do think too um, that um, artists are artists. They, they portray people the way that, you know, their, their imagination, you know, comes mm -hmm. up with that. And so I think just a lot of artists view her as young. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that's probably the, the norm. Right. And so I don't think it has anything to do with Mary's actual age. But a right. great question. Thank you. Right. Okay. Okay. Uh, one more question. Dear Father Spitzer, on his way to Calvary, Jesus told the mourning woman, women, I should say, not to weep for him, but for their children. He then said the days are coming when people will say, quote, unquote, blessed are the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. I feel this prediction by Jesus correlates to the despair of many of today's young women who refuse to have children because they fear that their future is doomed because of overpopulation and climate change. What is your interpretation of this gospel verse? Richard. Well, uh, first, Richard, you know, this is um, basically a prophetic, prophetic utterance um, by Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. So um, what Jesus is, is doing there is he's telling you there are hard times ahead. Now, of course, the hard times ahead, he's really referring to the eschatological times. So this would be something, you know, that precedes mm -hmm. the end times in the world. So... Um, uh, so that's what he's referring to. You don't want to apply that to a person who says, oh, uh, the times are really hard, so I don't want to bring any, any children in the world. Mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, the, uh, the climate's really bad, and I don't want to bring any more mm -hmm. human beings into the world. That would be a complete misapplication mm -hmm. of the prophetic utterance of Jesus to a non-eschatological, non-apocalyptic right. Apocalyptic setting. So, in other words, Jesus is really talking about the end times. Uh, you know, when people make those kinds of utterances, by the way, uh, this book, Moral Wisdom of the Catholic Church, that we're discussing, right. if you would just go to chapter three and take a look at the overpopulation myth, I think it's yeah. section um, uh, 4D or something or whatever it is, uh, there, or 4B, um, that overpopulation myth is. It is a myth. It's a right. And it, it is, is a, a total myth. myth. <laughs> right. I mean, as I said, in 2076, uh, we're you know every this is in the Lancet. This is not Bob Spitzer, right? Mm -hmm. So you know, in the Lancet, there you can see uh, very clearly that the Britain's Medical Journal that we are going to uh, go into an implosion uh, time after 2076. And once that happens, every developed country in the world mm -hmm. will experience tremendous financial hardships. They're going to have to have mass immigration policies. They're going to have to bring, be bringing in people from uh, developing countries. Not necessarily a bad thing, but they got to provide the infrastructure to do this. But in the meantime, you're going to have about 40 years where you've got truly one-fourth of the population almost supporting one half of the population, elderly population through taxes, it's going to become a very, very difficult situation. Uh, even people like Elon Musk say this is going to be 
bad news. Right. We've got to have more people coming into the world before 2076. Make no mistake about it. And don't think, you know, that um, the mass immigration that will be required uh, in order to support the developed nations in the world, do not think that this is going to be an easy task. Mm -hmm. We should be preparing for it now. If we don't have more children in the developed world now, uh, 2076 is going to get here real fast. That's mm -hmm. the, the, the inflection point of implosion, and that's the inflection point at which the developed nations are really going to go into a catapult um, downwards, as it right. were, and, um, uh, you know, in a vicious, vicious, uh, you know, cycle downwards. Then you're also going to see um, also, uh, mm -hmm. uh, I think, a lot of other social uh, difficulties that are going to come with it. Mm -hmm. Like I said, I'm a fan of immigration, but you have to prepare for it. Now is the time. Right. If we don't want to have children, we should be making the plans and putting the infrastructure in place because we're going to need so many people. You think Europe is bad off, you know, right now? You think Germany is bad off with the Gastarbeiter policy or, you know, in mm -hmm. France, you know, just bringing in huge numbers uh, of people from uh, the Middle East and, and, and from East, Eastern European mm -hmm. countries? They have not built the infrastructure. There is social discontent there. Right, absolutely. I mean, uh, and it's going to get worse and worse because they don't prepare for it. They don't treat the people with the, the, the respect and put the infrastructure and the materials in place. There's only two ways out of the implosion. Right. Number one, you're going to have to have more kids. Number two, you're going to have to prepare for massive immigration or right. both. But that's it. We're, it's either that or we're going to just economically right. and, soci uh, and uh, sociologically, we're going to collapse. And um, it's not just me. This is what people are saying. Right. And by the way, the whole idea that the net wealth per capita in the developing nations has gone down, hogwash. It's gone up by 4.8 times over the times of the largest population growth. And the reason that it has is because technology has opened those doors to the whole, you know, the Malthusian myth. You know, Thomas Malthus, you know, that population is increasing exponentially. Well, um, uh, the, um, the uh, resources are only increasing arithmetically. That is no longer true, hasn't been true for the last 180 years. Basically, the, the, the resource uh, um, uh, uh, increase has been exponentially proportional, in fact, even beyond exponentially right. proportional to the population growth because of technology, because of not just technologies in food um, production and energy production right. and communications, but technology also in the whole area of education and communication, right. et cetera. So this, this is a... Uh, well, you, you know, know, it's you, a myth you, from you, day right. one and, and it goes, that the eugenics people... Right, exactly. And it's and it, it fits in with the climate change because what you've got is this approach that people are bad for the climate. So if we have fewer people, that's actually better for the climate. And so that's one approach. And the other approach I think you're going to be dealing with, as you talked when you get top-heavy with older people, I think the answer is they're not planning on having all these older people. I think they're planning on figuring out a nice exit strategy for a lot of these people, you know, moving on to the next world uh, at much more rapidity than their own proper age would normally make happen.
Well, I'm not going to draw the Soylent Green scenario here, but <laughs> right. I, I do think that, uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, uh, th there's no doubt that, you know, euthanasia and, and physician-assisted suicide mm -hmm. is being pushed. Uh, and some of that really does have a social agenda to it. Mm -hmm. But the, the one thing I fear more than anything are the eugenics movements, mm -hmm. uh, the ones especially that have been out there in China, in North Korea, and um, many places in the developing world uh, from, you know, um, uh, Africa especially, but in other uh, areas as well. Mm -hmm. And all I can tell you is, you know, once you do that, once you have, you know, uh, when uh, three-quarters of the people being born into a culture are boys and one quarter are girls, you've got another social crisis on mm -hmm. your hands. So you're going to have crisis after crisis after crisis uh, going on. If you abort all the girls and you keep all the boys, all these things, I mean, we've got these social crises. It's manufactured. I'm telling you, it is manufactured by the population myth. Uh, if, if people would just read, I've got these statistics. They're right there in the book. Just look up, you know, like I said, this is not me. This is the Lancet, the number one uh, prestigious medical journal in, in, in Great Britain and, and other similar economic journals to it. Uh, like I said, it's not, you know, Elon Musk, he's, you know, normally, you know, we're, um, you know, our perspectives do intersect on occasion, but, mm -hmm. but certainly it's not through any intentionality. I mean, people are just saying this, you know, this is like, it, it's almost a fait accompli if we don't have more children. And, and it's certainly a fait accompli, uh, too, if we don't start preparing for mass immigration, which we will need if we don't have more children. And right. that is simply the facts of life. Absolutely. And you can say, oh, I doubt that very seriously. Well, uh, go ahead and wait till 2076. Mm -hmm. That seems to be the, uh, uh, you know, the m maneuver everybody wants to make. But just to let you know, when population equality is uh, going to happen, mm -hmm. uh, that's going to be in 2047. Mm -hmm. And then the slight downward turn in the developing nations is going to happen. And 2076, mark my words, it's going to be a very, very interesting new scenario. And the idea of the population explosion, people are going to say, whoa, what happened here? And um, uh, all I can say is yeah, the... uh, it was perfectly evident even today. If anybody wants to look at the studies instead of believing the propaganda, put out by the usual cultural media right. and those little intellectual elitists that are underlying the, the popular culture's right. belief in such things. Right, and, and after all, Pearl, uh, Paul Ehrlich's uh, predictions were all untrue. Nothing came true of what he had in his book. And, and if you look yeah. at all of these people, they, they have as bad a record as the people who keep predicting when Christ is going to come back to Earth. They're always wrong. Uh. Right? <laughs> Yeah, well, that's right, and you—that's right. You've certainly got the right idea there. Right. Right. Yep, I could. Uh, but no, the death and doom scenarios not right. only didn't come to pass; they were the exact opposite of what was predicted. Right. So when they said that resources would would crumple up, resources actually expanded exponentially. When they said that the financial markets would crumble, financial markets went up exponentially, and the net per capita wealth in the developing right. countries actually went up over four times, right. et cetera, et cetera. So you look at it, you take a look at all the United Nations um, you know, uh, sustainability goals that were established like 17 years ago 
gosh, we're, all, we're over halfway there mm -hmm. on potable water, on food, disease control, mm -hmm. childhood uh, mortality, everything. I mean, I mean, we've divided, in fact, it's less than half uh, of, of the problem that it was uh, previously. Right. So, you know, like I said, if you just want to read these things, just go to that uh, chapter two of my book. Right. Just go to uh, uh, section four, I think it's 4B, um, the overpopulation myth. And um, okay. I, I'm not kidding you. Uh, it, it really is fascinating. Okay, so, speaking of your book, don't, we, don't got apply, about, uh, we got about six yeah. minutes left. I just wanted to at least uh, oh, wow. catch something on your book. Sure. You say it may seem counterintuitive, but the future of our culture and society may well depend on the extent in which we can restore objective moral norms, religion, and conscience. How do you establish object objective moral norms if nobody can agree on what truth is? Well, first of all, I think all of, <clears throat> uh, let's say about 87% of the world agrees and you're right, it's not 100%. Mm -hmm. But if 87% agree, you know, cheating, lying, stealing, murdering, mm -hmm. harming people unnecessarily, and adulterous affairs with other people's wives or husbands is probably not a good thing to do. And, you know, that's about 87% of the world. Why would they agree? Because that's an, as C.S. Lewis, there's a beautiful appendix to C.S. Lewis's book called The Abolition of Man. And in there, he points out the eight norms that are common between all um, religions, not Satanism or something like that, but all, you know, uh, mainstream religions and between um, culture to culture, the, you know, the embedded uh, notions of conscience um, that we all have, right? A conscience is everywhere present, but these norms are all there universally in all of those cultures. Now... You know, given the fact that, you know, cultural differentiation mm -hmm. uh, is so vast, how in the world do you get a similarity like that among, you know, like 87% among all religions and all cultures mm -hmm. and the individuals in those religions and cultures? How are you going to explain that? Well, I think because it has a common source, and the common source is God. Now you say, ah, Spitzer, you have mm -hmm. leaped. Uh, you know, uh, uh, clearly a non sequitur of immense proportions. Okay, give me another common source. Oh, the old Jungian common source. I've forgotten about it. Yes, that would be that there is some kind of a collective unconsciousness out there. And the collective unconsciousness has the norms embedded in the universal and archetypal myths. Okay, so what is the source of the collective unconscious? This is a, a, an unconscious that we're all tapping into. Like, it's sort of like a, uh, an unconscious, uh, like a soul, a world soul that's out mm -hmm. there. And it's got these uh, archetypal myths embedded in it. And we're all kind of tapping into that. Huh, uh, what does that sound like to me? Well, I don't think God's an unconsciousness. But if, you're, uh, if I go one step further and say, well, instead of just an unconscious, I think that's a soul with the universal myths and with uh, the archetypal myths and with the morality that's embedded in that. And that sounds like God to me. Mm -hmm. So I'm going with God. God's the, the, the unified source. I think, you know, Jung had the guts to at least ask the question. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to answer it with God, per se, but he certainly came as close to God as you're going to get, mm -hmm. uh, you know, without actually saying God. And, uh, 
And I, I think, you know, he knew he was getting there. Uh, mm -hmm. Freud, of course, tried to say, oh, there's no such thing as, you know, a, a real conscience that has universal norms. But, of course, he couldn't prove that. You know, um, with his mechanistic theory, you know, if his life depended on it, you know, he didn't even come close to it. And why everybody went for Freud and, and you know, sort of, uh, you know, tip Jung upside down, I do not know. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the long and the short of it is, and I don't depend on my theory anyway for Jung. I depend on it my theory for Jesus mm -hmm. Christ. And I'm telling you, Jesus Christ is saying the common source of our conscience is God. And, you know, Shakespeare, I think, had it all right when he said, you know, conscience, you know, uh, the, the crooks in, in Shakespeare said, basically, conscience makes cowards of us all. Mm -hmm. But, of course, <laughs> cowards to the crook, but makes virtuous people out of all of us, too. And when we combine that with religion, that's where we see the most uh, virtuous conduct of all, the most self-sacrificial conduct of all, the most truly loving, that is to say, caring, compassionate, using, forgiving, you know, giving of ourselves and resources to others kind of compassion. Not just nice feelings or niceness, but I mean that kind of compassion and care and forgiveness and healing and bothering with somebody who's in, in great and helping them out and so forth and so on. That true kind of love where religion and morality come together, I'm telling you, mm -hmm. therein you will find Jesus Christ and his doctrine, and therein you will find, too, the true root of conscience, and that is the voice of Jesus' mm -hmm. heavenly Father. So when we uh, kind of look around to see whose voice it is that we are hearing in our conscience, there he stands, and if we do not recognize him, that's the only time that, of course, we have conscience uh, making us a coward, because it's our cowardice, right? You know, we're the ones that want to disobey our conscience, and, of course, the drive to go ahead against mm -hmm. your conscience, of course, is not bravery. Mm -hmm. It is the most fundamental kind of stupidity and moral insanity and moral suicide that you can possibly get. Anyway, right. uh, that's my answer. Yeah, I always remember when you were, <laughs> uh, you were referring there, I remember Father Groeschel always talked about the toughest thing was the ungrateful beggar, dealing with the ungrateful beggar. Oh, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, it's really tough. You think, oh, gosh, he ought to like me for giving him a buck, and he goes, this is paltry junk, you know. <laughs> right. So uh, I got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich story I'll tell you later. <laughs> right, exactly. What do you I got there? I don't like this stuff. Yeah, well, I, uh, yeah. I, had, I had somebody one time uh, like that who uh, gave me, yeah. you know, gave me something, and I gave them, all I had was like a quarter. They looked at the quarter, they looked at what I gave, and they gave, they gave me the quarter back. So I gave you the idea of where, <laughs> what was going on. So anyway. Oh, no, you know. So, Once in a food line, a guy says, uh, peanut butter sandwich, this is junk. Uh, you got any tuna here? How about a 10-buck bill? <laughs> what are you going right. to do? There you go. That's right. Absolutely. With that Christ said. Christ says, love them anyway. That's right. Absolutely. That's, that's what it's tough, especially. Okay, right. so if you'd like to finish it off with your blessing, Father, we could oh. use it so we can deal with Absolutely. the ungrateful beggars. So. Including ourselves. <laughs> That's right. And yeah, including myself. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those right in the front of the line. And, may, and bow your heads and pray for God's blessing. And may the Lord of all consolation, the Lord of all compassion and forgiveness, the Lord of love and care, the Lord, too, who gives us 
all the fine moral prescripts that help us in our lives give you the wisdom not only to see the gem, the goodness of what he gives us in morality and the example of love and in obedience to his Father, but also the capacity to follow that wisdom and follow it with great joy and trust into his kingdom. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Thank you so much. As always, Father Spitzer, be well. And of course, don't forget that Father Spitzer's books and DVDs are always available through our EWTN religious catalog, EWTNRC.com. And we will continue with the moral wisdom of the Catholic Church. We're just scratching the surface. EW10's bookmark this weekend, The Sexual Revolution, History, Ideology, Power, by Bishop Peter J. Elliott from Australia. A very interesting interview. He's a lot of fun. And we've got the Catholic University of America, Mass of the Holy Spirit, live from the Basilica, the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. Join the Catholic University of America as they open the academic year Thursday, and that's at noon, actually 12.10 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm Doug Keck. Thanks for being with us. We shall see you next time when we re-enter Father Spitzer's universe. Thanks.